This morning, we'll continue our study of Isaiah 40. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 17. The subject we'll be speaking on this morning is this thought, Behold the God over all creation. Behold the God over all creation. And I have simply three points here this morning as we behold God, the creator God. We'll see that he is unique within creation. We'll find this in verse 12. In verses 13 and 14, we'll see that he is independent from creation and in verses 15 through 17 as we close out the sermon we'll see that he is preeminent over all creation he is great he is mighty he is god so let's look at god's word here this morning who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel. Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is God's holy word. In the last couple of Sundays, we were introduced to the fact that God will come to his undeserving people to bring about their restoration. He will come to them while they are in captivity in Babylon. They, are, they will be in captivity because of their sin. Uh, they, will be, uh, they will have experienced the, the judgment hand of God upon them. And rightfully so, because God warned them. He, he warned them over and over again about their sin, 
about turning away from him, about making alliances with the nations, about turning in to themselves, looking to the strength of man. He warned them and they, they refused to heed his warning. And so judgment came. And God says in Isaiah 40 that he's going to come and, and comfort them. He's going to bring about their restoration. We saw that in verses 1 through 8. And, and we were introduced to the fact in verses 9 through 11, we were beginning to be told about how great God is. This God who would come to restore his people, the God who would, who would, who would forgive them of their sins. This, this God, who is he? What is he like? In verse 9 through 11, began to introduce us to who he is, that he is Yahweh, the, the mighty warrior. And he will come. And this, this is the one who will come and personally act on earth to deliver his people from Babylonian captivity. We saw in verse 11, not only that God will come with might, he will come with gentleness and, and tenderness. Verse 11 says these words are active words. These are words that God said that he will do personally. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather who's the subject God is the lambs in his arms he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young and God and Isaiah speaking meta metaphorically here in, in a in a figurative way of what of of how God will will carry uh, care for his people as he delivers them from their enemies and even though God tells his people this, even though God tells his people that he personally, he's going to come in verse 27, look down at verse 27, the, the nation of Israel accuses Yahweh, the covenant keeping God, of forgetting his people. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Why are you even saying these kind of words? My way is hidden from the Lord, hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God. To them, while they are in captivity, they are far off. They're way off in Babylon. They're under the rule of the Gentiles who have their gods and 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 they're struggling with the fact that God is going to be personally involved in their deliverance. God has forgotten about us. God doesn't see us. Is 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 where, where is he in all of this? You see, beloved, sin and suffering and trials and difficulties can tempt us to doubt God's personal involvement in our lives. Wayne Mack noted 
in reference to this, he said, quote, we can begin to interpret him, God, through our circumstances rather than reading our circumstances through the character of God, end quote. We can begin to think as the psalmist said in Psalm 50, verse 21, you, uh, that, that God says, you thought that I was like yourself. We do that. We, we think that we can act any kind of way before a holy God. God understand. He know my heart. He know I'm just struggling in this moment. And what we began to do in the midst of trials, unknowingly to us, we began to develop a low view of God. Where we low, we low uh, our understanding of God down and down. And we bring it so low that in our own understanding, we become God rather than God is God. We, we, can, we can become so absorbed with ourselves and our struggles and our trials and our tribulations. We can, we can become so consumed with them that God becomes a little God in our view. And so Isaiah, knowing this, I, Isaiah, knowing this, after he has given them the gospel, he, he comes along and he says, OK, now you need to know exactly who your God is. And sometimes we need that. We need a good dose of the sovereignty of God in our lives. Because we can forget who God is as his people. And so Isaiah, he starts out by, by uh, with the truth that God is the, the Lord of all creation. He starts out God-centered. It's not about man. It's not about his people. God is going to come to deliver his people. And it's not about them. It's about God. God is coming. He starts out God-centered. And he asks, a, he gives a, a, a series of rhetorical questions concerning the vastness of creation and, and the, tr the, the transcendence and what we mean by transcendence that, that, that of God, that he is separate from his creation and not dependent on the created order in any way. Yes, creation is vast, but it's not greater than God because he's the creator. He is transcendent. He is outside of creation. He's not dependent upon anything within creation. Nothing. He does not need anything within the creation to be God. He's transcendent. But also, he is imminent. Isaiah is going to speak on the imminence of God. That he is present within the universe. He's present within all that he has made. He's not a part of it. He's not a part of creation, but his, 
He is present. The, the psalmist said it this way. Psalm 137, uh, 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? You see, it's foolish for the people to say our way is hidden from God. There is nowhere that you can go where God is not. He's there. He's imminent. And so each one of the questions that Isaiah asks, they, they, they serve to draw us, they, to draw us in, to judge the facts, and come to an obvious conclusion. There's an obvious, he doesn't give the answer to the question, these rhetorical questions, because there's one answer. And I'm going to give you the answer before we take the test. God. Only God. <laughs> that's, the, that's the implied answer. It is so easy for us to look at what he says that the only conclusion that we come to is that this, only God can do this. This is only true of God. And so he, he's going to also use uh, anthropomorphic language or figurative language. He's going to speak of God having, having uh, hands. Uh, and, and we know that God is spirit. He doesn't have body parts like us, but this is speaking in a way so that we can, on, on our level, partially understand who God is. This, this is all he is. Partially understand the preeminence of Yahweh. But he is so infinite greater than us that, 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 that there is nothing that can compare to him. No one can compare to him. This, this is what the, the uh, Isaiah is going to uh, help us to see. There, 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 there is no bound. He got his, <laughs> he's so big. He, he, you can't contain him, even in your thoughts. We, we try to get a hold of God and say, I got God figured out. You, you'll never figure God out. He's so big. That's just a simple way of putting it. The aseity of God. Is the theological term. Second Chronicles said it like this. Second Chronicles two and six. But who is able to build him a house? Talking about God. Talking about the, the temple. Since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him. He has God has no limits. And if and and in in every way, his his holiness, his knowledge, his wisdom. He has infinite knowledge of the creation, and he and 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 because he's God, he can act within creation easily. And guess what? We see God. We're gonna see God interacting with God has acted, you know, with the mountains because he created the mountain, the waters. If God can act with these great it. On these great things, he can act on your life. Matter of fact, you are insignificant. Matter of fact, man, we're not even mentioned. We're so small that we don't even, in reality, we don't even fit into the equation. We're only there because God chooses to act with us.
He, he's personally involved in creation. And this should humble us. And it should prepare our minds to believe that nothing will keep God from accomplishing his purposes in our lives. So let's look at verse number 12. And here we'll see that God is unique within the creation. Because God is, 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 is not just, he didn't create the world and, and he's in heaven not in, interacting with, with his creation. Uh, uh, God, is, God has, has acted and he has intimate knowledge uh, and mastery of the creation. No one has mastery and, and knowledge of creation as him, and this makes him unique. Look at verse 12. And again, this is figuratively speaking, God is spirit. He has no body. But this is figurative language for us to understand. Look at verse 12 where it says, who? It asks a series of questions. Who has measured? Notice the tense. Has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. God in the beginning, we know, simply spoke all things into existence. And the psalmist, I mean, and Isaiah here is asking the question. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Answer, God, God alone. God, God alone is able to do this because he created the waters. He, he created the waters. He divided up the waters. And he says that he pictures God as measuring all the waters of the world, the waters of the oceans, waters in the, 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 the atmosphere, the waters underneath the earth. All the waters, he, 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 he pictures God as measuring all the waters in the shallow cup of his hand. All the waters. I've been on a cruise and we were about a day or so out from land and I saw nothing but water and I was intimidated and awed by that reality. Everywhere you look was just water, no land. God is so great. He is, he is, he is so unique as God that he is able to measure. He knows the, the quantity of water that is in all the earth. There's nobody like God. That there is, there, there is no one like him and this stresses God's knowledge of and, and his power to allocate the waters. He, he has infinite knowledge. He has infinite power. He alone exercises complete control over the waters. That, that's what, if he can measure the waters, he can do with the waters as he's pleasing. Let's look at the scripture. And, and Isaiah mentioned uh, this, and, and not only Isaiah, but the psalmist. I got plenty of scripture, but I'm, I just want you to turn to a few. Turn to Isaiah chapter 41. 
Isaiah chapter 41, verses 17 and 18. He gives water to those who are thirsty. God's power is absolute. Listen, listen to the scripture. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Turn to Isaiah 43. Verse 2. God will, God is able because he has such mastery and knowledge of his creation, particularly over the waters. He can provide for those who are thirsty. Isaiah 43 and 2 says, he can provide protection. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. This takes us back to the Exodus, right? When you Walk through fire, you shall not be burned. Who believed this? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is God making promises of what he will do for his people. And he said, and the flame shall not consume you. I bet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego read this and they were like, oh, king, you can put us in the fiery furnace and do what you will. The God of protectors. He protected his people who walked through the Red Sea. God has control of the waters. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Verse 20. The, the wild beasts will honor me and the jackals and the ostriches for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Who controls the water? God does. He's the creator. He's able to do with the waters as he pleases. We should honor him because of that. Isaiah 49 verse 10. And this is just some of the scriptures. They shall not hunger or thirst, nor scorching wind, nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water, he will guide them. Talking about God and his care for his people. He can care for his people because he has absolute control over the creation. Turn to Psalm 60, 65. Psalm 65, verse 7. I'm talking about God who, it says, who steals the roaring of the seas. And the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the people. 
God is the one who can silence a hurricane. There's a hur- there's a couple of hurricanes off the uh, down one down by Mexico. God can God can go out there and say cease if he wanted to. Stop. And you say, oh, can he? Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 8 and see our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is, 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 is unique because he can come in and do what we cannot do. Matthew chapter 8, verse 24. Let's start at verse 23, and it says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And so they set sail. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Who? Jesus. And they, and and you see here the inability of man to do anything to save himself. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? I mean, can you imagine that? You've been a fisherman all your life. You're in a boat. There's a storm. And you know that there's only one conclusion. If the storm is great enough and the boat is tossed back and forth enough, the boat is going to, you're going to sink. But that doesn't register in the mind of God because the God man has complete control. Jesus asked him, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was not just a calm, but a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? They marveled, not at the fact that the, you know, that the storm stopped. They marveled at the fact of, who it is that Jesus is so unique that he can command the wind and the waves. He's unique. Isaiah moves on from earth, talking about the waters, to heaven. And he says, and marked off the heavens with a span. Who has done this? You and I can't do it. None but God, beloved, can do this. You see, we measure space in light years, right? That's how we we look out and we measure the distance between the planets and the stars. We measure in light years. But you know how God measures? You know how God determines the distance of the entire universe with all the galaxies, uh, with all the stars, billions upon billions? You know how God determines the distance? With a span. Imagine that. A span between the pinky, the pinky and the thumb. That's a span right there. God marked and he's given us the image that God is so unique 
that he marked the entire universe between the distance of his thumb and his pinky. Isn't our God awesome? Isn't he a great God? The God in the beginning who created the heavens and earth? He, he, his, his, he is so great that the universe is nothing to him. He is so big that the universe is so small to him. Isaiah 40 and 22 says this. Of God, he, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Talking about God. Verse 26 says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Talking about the stars. Who bring, who, he who brings out their hosts by number, calling them. This, I, I can't even imagine this. All everything he called it by billions of stars. You think you know it all? You you kids, you think you know it all? You don't know nothing. God calls each star by name. Billions, trillions, however many is out there, we don't even know. We got to get God right. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is God didn't forget to put a star out there. God didn't forget to maintain this star. This should shame us when we think of God with low thoughts. It should be a shame. Particularly us who believe that the scriptures are the word of God. To say that we believe that God's word is his word and yet when we think of God with such low thoughts, that's, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't pass the common sense test. Isaiah 48 and 13, my, my hand laid the foundation of the earth, God says, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call them, they stand forth together, meaning they respond. The creation, the, the created universe responds to God. And yet it is little bitty insignificant man that rebels against him. God says stars. Shine and stay where you are. And they do it. But it's man who he commands and rebels. God is great, beloved. 
He is so great that he knows the exact dimensions of the dust of the earth. Come on now. Notice what he said, enclose the dust of the earth in a measure. Measure here would be about a gallon or just over four liters. And he says, picture this, the earth is so small to Yahweh that he easily puts all the dust of the world in a measure or in a gallon container. There's dust on this pulpit. I can barely, I can't even see it. It's, you know, it's, it's small. I can't do anything with it, but dust it off. But it said that God can gather all the dust, the dust in your house, the dust under your couches, under your beds, all the dust God can take and he, he enclosed the dust. Of, he says the earth in a measure. And he goes on and say, and weigh the mountains. So you go from the, the real small thing, real insignificant, small. And he weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance. God, take, he, 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 he's again speaking frequently. God can take all the mountains, put them on a scale and balance a scale. That must be a big scale. He can, he can balance the hills and the mountains on a, on a scale. Can you do that? Raise your hand if you can do that. God is so great and unique within the creation. He can, he can pick up the mountains and put them on a scale. No, no one is great as our God. He, he is all powerful. There's no weakness in him. He, 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 he has acted in the natural world with ease. And no one has seen this. No one seen God create all things and have, and, 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 and when he created with, with, and having such mastery over all things. No one's seen that. But he acted. Scripture informs us that God acted in the natural world that we see. In, in the big things, in the oceans, he, he's, he is the one who acted on those things. And no wonder Psalm 19 verse 1 proclaims this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. If God has such knowledge and such control, because this all, this all, these, these things took place before we even came into the world. These things took place when God created the world, showing that his knowledge is beyond our knowledge. He knows the world unlike we know the world. If he has such knowledge and such control over the created world, Beloved, can I say something? He knows you. He, he knows you. You say, I got a big problem. <laughs> In comparison to 
what in, in comparison to the reality of all things, is what we dealing with really big? No. No, not to God. This is what this is saying. Not to God. Nothing is big to God. Oh, how we need this truth. Nothing will, and this is a, this is the comfort to the people that your God is unique. He, he's unique. He's not a dumb idol. He's unique. He is all powerful, all knowing. He's all present. He's everywhere. And nothing can stop him from coming to you, Israel. He, nothing can stop him from coming to you, Judah. He's independent from the creation. Verses 13 and 14. He's self-sufficient. He's independent. He's the great I am, Exodus 3 and 14. God is independent from his creation. He, he's not dependent upon it in any way. Look at verse 13. Who, who has measured or directed? Who has directed the spirit of Yahweh? Or what man shows him counsel? I mean, who has directed God to do this or that? Who has counseled? Who has counseled God? No one counsels God. Sometimes we think we know better than God. We think we know better than God about how to order our lives. Instead of submitting to his will, we, we order our own lives according to our own wisdom and call it God's will. <laughs> this is what God wants me to do. You think you know better than the creator about your life? Matter of fact, you only can do what he enables you to do or what he allows you to do. You think you know better than the creator? You know what you know what happens to those? What what it what it is when you think you know better than the creator and you start doing your own will? Isaiah 45 and 9 says this. It gives this warning. Isaiah 45 and 9 says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Wait a minute. God has formed. He made you. And he says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. I mean, you have no hands. What are you doing, God? Do you know what you're doing with my life? Do you have any kind of idea what you're doing? I'm suffering. I'm struggling. I have these issues going on. Do you know what you're doing? Can you counsel God? Can you question him? Woe to him who strives with his maker, Isaiah said. How foolish that is. Verse 14. Who did whom did he consult and who made him understand? The idea is who taught or instructed or caused God to have understanding? This implies that someone with more knowledge and or more experience 
has informed God of what he does not know. Or pointed out to him the right path in which his in which his understanding is to is to take. Then we think we we try to do that with God. No one taught the Lord anything. Job 36 verses 22 through, uh, 22 through 23 says this. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way or who can say you have done wrong? Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 10 says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. And, and this is what makes God unique. He says. And, and that he's and he's independent of the creation, he says this declaring from the end he, he declares the end from the beginning wait a minute he don't just talk about the beginning but he talks about the end because he knows the end <laughs> he de- he declares he says he declares declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time, things not yet done. I mean, can you teach God anything? Do you know about things that are not yet done? Come on. God is the one. He said, declaring from the, the end from the beginning and from the from ancient time, things not yet done, uh, done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is our God. Behold, your God. Who taught back in Isaiah? Who taught him the path of justice? No one. God alone is just. The world has a way, has their own justice, but it really not justice. You know, if justice was left left up to us, we will rip each other apart. That's our justice. You wrong me. I'm going to get you. That's our justice. But who taught God the path of justice? He alone is just. His justice is right. And taught him, it goes on, and taught him in knowledge and show him the way of understanding. (laughs) Who has given God understanding or insight? No one. No one. Job 21 and 22 says this. Who will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? God alone possesses perfect knowledge, beloved. He he alone. No one would teach God anything, anything. He alone possesses perfect knowledge and understanding. And this is what Paul, he even quotes this. He 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 references this. This verse, Romans 11, verses 33 through 34. Oh, the depths of of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord 
or who has been his, his counselor? No one. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Paul asked, quoting uh, back to this. Second Peter chapter two, verse nine. Talking about the, 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 the Lord and his intimate knowledge, even in, when we're in a tough spot in persecution. Second Peter 2 and 9 says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trouble. I mean, God knows how, God knows how to be God and accomplish his purpose. He know he says, he says, he know how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God has infinite knowledge, infinite knowledge of all things. And he, he, he knows all things. He never needs to learn anything. He's omniscient. He, he's omniscient and his perfect knowledge includes all past, present, and future realities. How glorious is God? How, how glorious is our God? He knows and understands everything. And if he does, isn't it foolish not to consult him? I mean, if he knows everything, past, present, future realities, is it, ain't it foolish? Bad English. Ain't it foolish? not to consult him, to go to him, to seek his will. When you try to do your own thing, it won't stand. Proverbs 21 and 30 says, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. So you don't consult him and you go your own way. No, not, not, your wisdom won't prevail. It won't avail. It won't avail. Verses 15 through 17. He is preeminent over all things. He is preeminent over all things. Notice what, the, what Isaiah writes. God is sovereign over the nations. How sovereign is he? He says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Think about it. I've, I've drawn water from a well at my grandma's house, my grandma and granddad's house. You take the bucket, drop it down into the well, you pull it up, take it out, drop of water falls off the bucket. Don't even notice it. You don't even, you carry a bucket of water, drop falls off, you don't even notice it. And, and, and it says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Small, powerless, insignificant. You don't worry about a drop from a bucket. And it says, and are counted as dust on a scale. Dust on a scale don't even move the scale. Don't even register. They're nothing. The nations, the peoples of the nations, and you and I. And, and yet God chooses to interact with us as his people. If the nations are like dust, we as individuals are nothing. And yet God chose to set his love. God's activity 
His activity of love and compassion is toward his people. That should keep us on our knees. We're so prideful. Things like that just don't move us. That should make you get on your face. That this great God has chose to set his attention upon you. The nations are counting as dust on the scale. Behold, pay, pay attention to this. He says, behold, he takes up the coastline like fine dust. God can deliver his people from every enemy, for he's greater than all. They're, they're nothing. He takes them up. He, he, ta- he does what he wants to with the nations. Verse 16, Lebanon which is known for its beautiful cedars uh, during this time, would not suffice for few. All the cedars of Lebanon are not enough. Uh, he goes on to say, Lebanon would not suffice for few, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. The, the most impressive forest cannot sufficiently provide enough trees for a sacrificial fire that is sufficient for the for the uh, majesty of God. You can't you can't get enough. You can't get a fire big enough that will that will, in a sense, satisfy, satisfyingly point to the reality of the of the glory of God. Nor is beast enough for a burnt offering. All the you can get all the wood, all the animals, in the most impressive forest. And, and, and that is not enough. Can I tell you what we do here, even now in our worship and praise, is not enough? You may be sitting here and thinking, I, I'm doing my part. I mean, just think about it. If all the trees, we're talking about a sacrificial offering to God. You take all, you take all the trees of the earth, pile them up, set them on fire, all the animals, take their life, put them on that altar and say, God, are you now pleased with my sacrifice? It's not enough. It's not enough. Our God is so great. Do you understand that? We come to church and we think we're doing something. And the only reason you can do what you're doing is because God is at work in you, willing to, and and he's at work in you to will and to do his perfect pleasure. You only can do what you're doing because God is at work in you. And how dare we think that, oh, I'm not like everybody else. It is God alone. It is he alone who is preeminent. We're nothing. The nations are nothing. Our sacrifices are nothing. 
We don't it what we do don't make us stand above uh nobody else in the world. Because we're insignificant. It says again in verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. Because only God is great. They are counted as by him as less than nothing. They're in, in emptiness. God stands above them all and rules and reigns. And the combined power and might of the world is nothing compared to our great God. Daniel 4 and 35 says this, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can, can do that. No one can stop God from doing what he wants to in creation. No one can come to God and say, what are you doing? Because they don't have the insight behind why God is doing what he's doing. So why does God give us this, 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 you know, these truths in the way that he has given them to us? So that we can, so that we can know him, so we can have some sense. So that we can have a, some, a, 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 some type of understanding of who he is. Of who this, who our God is. And we'll never understand him completely. We'll always be growing in our understanding of who God is. But what we have before us in this passage, it should inflame our heart with the greatness of our God, the creator God. Because God created you to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That's the purpose in which God created you. And he reveals himself in the way that he reveals himself so that we can glorify him and that we can enjoy him. Sometimes I think people come to church and they don't enjoy. They come, they got sour faces. Because they don't know God as they are. Because there is some other joy that they're seeking now. Something else that they're desiring to glorify other than God. Because if you desire to glorify God alone, nothing will compete with that. No matter what is going on, no matter what, what is going on, what, what, uh, no matter what is not happening, it, it doesn't matter. If you if, if you see God and you desire to glorify him, all of those things just fall to the side and God gets the glory. Not to ourselves, not to ourselves, but to your name. Give glory. And how do we do that? We settle our minds, we. Psalm 46 and 10, be still 
and know that I am God. You, you, you stop worrying. You stop being anxious and, 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 and know something. Know that God is God. Set your, take such passages as this and rehearse them in your mind. Meditate upon them. Be still and know that I am God. In the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of your suffering, do like Jehoshaphat in his prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6. He says, this is being still and, and knowing that God is God. There's a great army coming against the people of God. And Jehoshaphat has gotten word that, that, it's, that they're coming. This great army. And what does he do? He's still. He prays. And he, this, is, this is part of his prayer. Oh, Lord, God of our fathers. Are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. What does this sound like? Sound like what Isaiah is talking about. He's praying God's nature, God's character, who got it. He's, he's praying what he knew about God. And he's being and he he's being still and he knowing that God is God. You see, beloved, God wants us to have a deep personal knowledge of him, knowing him. Knowing who he is, knowing his character, his ways. And when we know this about him, it will help us to trust him, help us to be in peace, help us to have hope in times of disappointment. It is daily saturating our minds with the truth of God's attributes and keeping them on the front burner of our minds. This will help us to faithfully submit to his will and to his wisdom. And I'll close with this. Terry Johnson observed this, quote, faith in God requires trust in relation to a variety of his attributes. We must ask ourselves, in relation to my particular struggle, trial, or affliction, listen, do I believe that he knows about it, his omniscience, can do anything about it, God's omnipotence, that he is inclined to do anything about it, his goodness, and will handle it the best way, his wisdom. This is how when we are Whatever we in, this is how we're to be thinking about God, about his omniscience, his omnipotence, his goodness, his wisdom, all his character. We, we're to think about him first. And how does God relate to this? Read your circumstances through the character of God. Who he is. And that will settle your heart. Amen.
Let us pray. Father, I thank you. How, as, as we even read about your people Israel, this, this one, these wonderful truths that Isaiah, uh, that we have that, that has come through the prophet Isaiah, uh, that we have on the pages of scripture, even as God had given these to him, the people of Israel would not receive uh, these truths. They would continue to even rebel against the, the, these wonderful and, and majestic truths about who you are. They will continue to question you. They, uh, when, when, when you, uh, as you have revealed that the nations are as a drop in a uh, drop from a bucket, and when you begin to tell them how exactly their deliverance is going to come about through King Cyrus, they begin to to strive with you and complain. This this is us, oh God. How often do we complain and grumble about what you're doing and how you have structured our lives and the world around us? Because in reality, we think we're God. In reality, when we get angry, when things don't go our way, we're really angry with you. And we need to just tell the truth. That is that 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 when we do not submit to your wisdom and your way, where we're as, as you have ordered it in the world, we are refusing to submit to you. And this is why we have the truth of your involvement in all creation. Of your wisdom, of your knowledge. So that we can resist the temptation to doubt what you're doing in our lives, even when we don't understand. And how merciful you are, how merciful you are is when you allow us to think we know better, to think we big and bad enough, to know better how to order our lives, how things should be going in our lives than you. Can the clay say to the pot, the, the potter, can the clay that's being made that has no ability in and of itself say to the potter who's forming it, who's making it? Help us, Father. Help us to resist the temptation to question your will for our lives. Because you're great. And that greatness is revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your tenderness and your mercy is revealed in the God man who came and died upon the cross for us. That's how much you loved us. That he died for us. Which was no little thing. Thank you for showing us your greatness upon the cross. Thank you for showing us your greatness in your word. And may we govern ourselves accordingly for the sake of Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.